welcome to another episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast from Strong Towns. I'm your host, Rachel, program director here at Strong Towns. Our guest today is Diamon Hargis. Based in Indianapolis, Hargis' work focuses on listening and asset based community development, a term that he's going to define for you in just a minute here. He is the executive director of a nonprofit called The Learning Tree, a board member of the Grassroots Grantmaker Association, recent recipient of the Wesleyan Investive Tom Locke Innovative Leader Award, and he's a member of the Parish Collective, which uh, my colleague John is also a member. Perhaps the best way to describe Hargis, though, is by his title, The Roving Listener. Hargis is dedicated to deeply listening to neighbors, hearing their stories, and drawing out their gifts and talents. His work is rooted in the belief that everyone has something to offer their community, and the most meaningful transformation will happen when we focus on those assets and abundance, not in what a person or neighborhood lacks. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you'll hear a little bit of my um, divinity school degree coming out and my interest in religion um, because Diamond is is definitely a person of faith and his work is really influenced by that. But I know that whether you're religious or not, you're going to find a lot to get out of this, particularly this message of the power of listening and how transformative that can be in our neighborhoods and truly, truly for building strong towns and doing that work to make our communities more financially resilient. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Diamond Hargis. So Diamond Hargis, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast from Strong Towns. Really glad to be talking with you today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey to what you're doing now? I'd probably start off saying that my journey started off before I was born and my grandparents might have graded from the South to South Bend, Indiana, where they uh, landed up in a very uh, probably hostile place racially and structurally in the time in our country. But one of the things that I grew up with the stories of about community. So that's probably where my journey started at. But then I think when I hit my early 20s, I met in 2000, I met uh, this pastor named Mike Mather, and he was always curious about creative people and people thought I should meet him. And we had lunch and started to hang out. And one of the first questions he asked me is just to tell me your story. And the story that I told was the story about my grandparents not letting any gifts and talents go unutilized for the common good of their community. Yeah, that sounds like it's definitely had a big impact on on the work that I know you do today. Absolutely. Yeah, before we get into that more deeply, um, I'd love to also hear about the the community that you live in, that you're part of um, now, your neighborhood or, or your city. I live in Indianapolis, Indiana right now, and I attend a church near my community called Broadway United Methodist. And about a mile away is a community called United Northwest um, Neighborhood. And that is my neighborhood that I reside in. 
it is uh, right now very, very close, 30 blocks from downtown. So it's in Center Township. And this part of the community had been African-American for a long time and still primarily is. But it's one of those hot neighborhoods now that people want to live in. But in the previous recent years, it had been known for its police runs. It's very rich, a very vibrant, active community, very walkable. It's a place where people know each other and share their stories and share other things that sometimes people don't see. So that's a good lead into talking about your work doing asset-based community development. Can you explain for folks that aren't familiar with that term, what that is and why you use that approach in your own work? Well, I love it because I was learning that that's the work that I was naturally and what my grandparents were doing. It's the whole premise where we start from an abundant space of seeing the world instead of a lack scarcity space of seeing the world. It's where we utilize the gifts and talents of every single person. It finds ways to connect them for the common good. And so that's the theoretical work of asset-based community development. Um, And then it starts with not institutions, but people who make associations and institutions. And what does that look like moving like past the theoretical to the practical? Like what does that look like uh, on the ground when you are um, working with neighborhoods and communities? Well, one of the things that happened in my neighborhood, as I described how people saw it as a lack place, And I've always grew up in low-income neighborhoods, hung out and still do. And one of the things that I started to learn early on is that people weren't trying to see it or couldn't get past the stigmas. So one of the things I've done naturally already was I'm always curious about what other people offer. And so I would go around and one of my first stories was watching this young man who was a stay-at-home dad like myself. He was playing chess on the porch and he would watch his kids and then other neighbors would come over and he were teaching chess. That was a story that didn't hurt that that you don't get to see in our neighborhoods. You don't see that on the front page of the news. So I would go always down and I moved to Indianapolis and Reverend Mike had moved to Indianapolis um, and he was a pastor at Broadway. And I would always do what we did in South Bend, Indiana, and I would share stories about what I would see. And it started to intrigue his work. And so we created a little role for me called The Roving Listener. And so my job was to go from house to house, um, from the youngest to the oldest, to ask about their gifts, talents, and contributions to a community. Um, these were things that I often wouldn't see. So like the first time I pop up and knock on the door and just my neighbors that I knew, um, and I would t- have them tell me a story about what they were good at or what bring them joy. Um, and at the end of the week, I would uh, find a host on the block and they would gather together and be witnesses to each other's gifts. But in addition to each other, we started inviting people who couldn't see it or hadn't seen it. So I would invite people from my church, other churches and the Community Development Corporation who um, made an investment in the project. 
And because they couldn't see it, they at first they couldn't understand it. But at the parties, we had a little rule and saying, you know, people know you as with power. So when you come in, your job is just to listen and you can ask discerning questions. And so it kind of erupted. And one of the things we immediately learned, once people start to see things, it starts to inform them how they can act with each other. Is it challenging to to tell someone in power that they need to like stop talking and, and focus on listening? I feel like listening is a skill that a lot of our society doesn't really prioritize and we don't like teach our kids that skill very well. Yeah, I mean, listening is this, it is hard. It is hard to do that. It's also hard when we've been in practice so long that the way we solve problems is to always come up with an answer. And in my experience, in my community, there's always questions. And that is the thing that helps communities thrive, is asking good questions. And so the other thing we did immediately when we went and when we started, I started out going to listening to my neighbor's gifts and talents. I started to realize they already had the answer to things. And I was practicing being able to ask questions that highlighted or helped bear witness to what people didn't always see. So um, I remember going into a house and, you know, I remember um, the spouse of one of my neighbors said, she said, I don't have any gifts. And she kept saying that I went back twice. And one day her husband was there and he said, she do have some gifts. And he took me and showed me these designs she would do and and decorate in our house. And she she showed me in a bathroom. And so I think it's hard to to reorient ourselves around listening because it's an act too. Am I right that you founded the Learning Tree organization and, and you're a leader of that organization? How did that come about? I was just talking before this call. I had my friend Fernando Rodriguez. He was part of helping me come up with the name of it. But when I started doing the Roving Listener and really started capturing community and started my vocation and cause started to be more visible and in some ways have become a, a teacher and a sharer of community. And so I would get to travel around. But the other thing that even though my life was getting better, I, it didn't make a community better. And so I, one of the challenges I put on myself, how could I um, create a company that in its value uh, walk the walk that it talks about. And so made my neighbors my business partners. And I didn't, I knew what I wanted. I wanted to share my connections and and time and talent. And I also wanted my neighbors to be able to do that in a way that is on a global level. And so that started to happen. And I think one of the things that um, that came out about it, we were sitting on the porch talking about you know, what will we call it? And my um, friend Fernando reminded me, helped me remember what my granddad did when my mother was born. It's plant a tree and they call it the learning tree. So that's how it got its name. But the other thing is, is that the real work after we do some of our consultant work, so we are a consultant company and, you know, my neighbors, most who may not make $25,000 a year, make it really decent salary with us, but they give 20% of their income back that goes in the four to 10 block radius around where we live. Wow. That reminds me of like tithing in in the church. Um, How did that come about? 
that practice? I was just I was just thinking about um, you know sitting in the pews of Broadway and some being a member there, and one of the things that I was always allowed to do is give and. You know, I didn't, it wasn't always money because I always didn't have a lot of money, <laughs> but I found opportunities to make contributions that, I was, and, I, you know, being celebrated, that felt good. And I, it made me think, why should we all hoard all the giving to ourselves? And I started thinking about what does community give and tithe back? And I started asking my neighbors, who do they give to in their community um, family that they never expect money back from? And it was like, wow, I was like impressed by like, like how many dollars and time and talent people would give, but nobody counted it as philanthropy. And so I wanted to, I thought one way to do it, if it's all true, how can we collectively just bear witness to it by allowing people to give? And so that's why I really started to do it. And it's more than just grant making because it's really supporting the gifts and talents and contributions of people. So we don't do an RFP. Um, we just pop up with a check for people that act in agency. And we say, you can't do this alone anymore. You got to fail three, at least three times and you can't do anything obscene or illegal. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we stretch the illegal end because slavery was once legal in this country. What sort of projects are you working on right now at the Learning Tree? Um, if you're able to share, um, like some of the things you're excited about that you're working on. Wow. Okay. I can start. I'm going to start from the ground up. We, we continue to do gatherings and parties, but one of the things that we do, we do those because we try to build social bonds um, in and outside the neighborhood. And so that is a continuous type thing, doing concerts, porch parties and stuff like that. But we are at the place where we're now concrete. And so we're in the midst of a site control of a city block and some other uh, land acquisitions for some pretty um, grassroots community development projects. And so we're going to develop our own little city block with residents and civic leaders and um, yeah, who, whoever, venture capitalists. <laughs> so that's the on the ground project. Um, Very cool. Um, that's also kind of been seeded and supported by one of uh, a couple of consultant contracts with Central Indiana Community Foundation. We, we have the learning contract to help them with their new race and equity initiative. And that right there has helped uh, get in the door around conversations around policy, around housing, um, policing, health care, and mental health. And so that's been fun. Um, on the state level, we are working with Department of Workforce Development at the governor's level to help create other roving listeners, ambassadors around um, the state of Indiana in five cities. So teaching people how, teaching the the governor's office, the workforce development department to think about how do they utilize residents and make investments into listening. I love that. That's, uh, that's amazing to hear that you're able to make those inroads with government, uh, like convincing state leaders that that listening is an important practice for for building stronger communities. That's yeah. so impressive. 
on a national level, um, we are part of an initiative with uh, Amy Butler to do uh, Invested in Faith. So we're going to be grant makers on a national level, bringing together folks like the Learning Tree and collectives that invest in their community and kind of see this way of abundance. So that's that's a that's just getting started and that's going to be fun to do. So we get to do all this stuff. It seems like I'm doing a lot, but one of the things that uh, this is never in isolation or in a vacuum. So this only happens because congregation members and neighbors are doing the work. And my job really is just to play witness and bear witness and highlight and connect those where the world needs them. Yeah, that's wonderfully said. Um, so I know that that your faith and your um, membership in, in a church community, as well as your involvement in the parish collective is, is like a really important guiding part of what you do. You know, plenty of our our listeners and and folks in America today aren't part of religious communities, but there is something to, to religious communities or, or other really strong sources of community that, you know, where you meet folks from different walks of life, different ages, different incomes. Um, I think, Churches and other houses of worship are are a unique space where so much can happen. I don't know if you if you have a reaction to that or just speaking to to the power of of what religious communities and other types of communities can do to really propel people forward in, in generosity and community building. Well, I want to start out just put in my United Methodist tradition with using some of the Wesleyan acts that the world is our parish. And that means a lot to me. And I was thinking about one particular story. I ended up doing an um, ABCD training in Thunder Bay. You know, I'm younger than most people in the room or like that there were the elders there in the First Nation community. Um, Community that felt like mirrored some of our communities here in the United States. And the elder, what, what really shot me, the elder set context to their to the meeting and he said, we aren't here to build community. We are here to remember it. And that struck me because though they wouldn't claim Christian or may not be, but they were a community of faith, right? In our faith tradition, we remember our baptism, right? And they were doing the same. And so it's often um, affirming that the way we worship should re- reflect the way we live and what is true already. Well, I want to close by asking what advice do you have for others who want to learn to listen better, um, to develop that skill and to see the assets in their neighborhood as opposed to seeing the, the lacks and the challenges. How do we become better listeners and better uh, pay attention to those assets and gifts. So I should put a disclaimer before I say this, but uh, I think it's a sin to discover gifts and talents if we aren't prepared to recognize, celebrate, and utilize them for the common good. So first, if we do that, I just want to preface that, but practice is one thing. It is one of the things, one of the most 
important things because people have intent, right? It's in our head, but the intent to practice is the main thing. And so what that means when we start to listen after we kind of build our fabric and the pipeline to collect and utilize those skills, we need to practice just being still. And listening is more than what comes in your ears and your eyes. It is done with your whole body, is done with all the senses. And so you can you can practice that by asking questions about people's gifts and talents or not even asking them, just holding them, just try to bear witness to it. And so I used to do that. And one of the things that I could tell when a person's gift would come up is because their body language was changed and their eyes and their inflections. And so that's at the point where I dive into questions. <laughs> you could hear it in their voice. So, but practice that. Practice it with your leadership in the church. Most of us don't even do it with the people, with our lay members. And so it's a great place to start on your committees, start your meeting with a question saying, what brings you joy? That's great advice for for anyone, any type of community or leader in, in towns all over the country. Well, thank you so much, Diamond Hargis, for this conversation. Um, really appreciate getting to learn from you, to listen to you. Um, and also congratulations on, I know you were just uh, given a Tom Locke Innovative Leader Award. So wanted to extend congratulations on that as well. Thank you. I'm excited to hang out with the other awardees too. Wonderful. Well, I will make sure to share links to um, the Learning Tree and other um, websites and resources about asset-based community development and, and your work with our listeners. Um, but thank you so much for your time and the conversation today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that conversation. One quote that keeps staying with me is when he said, asking good questions helps communities thrive. I think that is so valuable and, and something I'm going to be thinking about in the coming weeks. Turning to some Strong Towns business, the biggest news is that we had an exciting announcement this Monday. Chuck Marone has a new book coming out in September. It's called Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, Transportation for a Strong Town. And this is really like the book if you want to learn about how your transportation system can serve you and your neighbors and your city and not bankrupt you and your neighbors in your city. Just to get real for a second here, over the last couple of weeks, I've had a couple of pieces of really sad news come my way about folks being hit by cars and killed um, people in my life. And it just brings home how essential it is to make sure that our transportation is safe and helpful and not harmful and doesn't just prioritize the fast movement of cars above everything else. So this book is really important and I hope that you will check it out. I'll link to our announcement post and our website. It's confessions.engineer. Pretty easy there. You can pre-order the book now and there's also other ways to get involved. We'll be doing a book tour and you can fill out a form if you're interested in bringing Chuck to speak in your town as part of that tour. You can also take our Strong Towns Academy course called Aligning Transportation with a Strong Towns Approach. We just finished publishing the entire course. 
it is, I don't actually know the credit count because I know that we went over, but it is worth, I think, six to eight AICP credits. That means it's many hours of really in-depth, fascinating and important learning around transportation, um, mostly led by Chuck Marone. And finally, we also have a uh, confessional setup on that confessions.engineer website where you can anonymously submit perhaps a dubious project that you were part of or something that's made you frustrated with your profession if you are an engineer or a planner. And we'll feature some of those stories um, anonymously later in the year. Oh, and last thing, of course, if you want to really stay in the loop about this book, stay in the loop about updates, we're going to have a book launch team that we're forming. So all of that, I will include the link to sign up for our email list to make sure you are um, staying plugged in to all these updates on our new book coming out, Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. So again, that website is confessions.engineer. And we are excited to be rolling it out in a couple months here. Finally, thank you to our Strong Towns members who make all of this work possible. You make these interviews and this podcast possible. You make our daily content and all the different ways to connect with fellow members and advocates possible. And you make this whole movement happen. So thank you to our members. If you want to join as a member, head to strongtowns.org slash membership. You can do that today. All right. Thanks, y'all. We will see you back here next week for another episode. Take care.